Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode features discussion of drugs, sex work, addiction, and other illegal behavior that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. In December 1993, Jordan Belfort laid on the lawn outside his massive estate, waiting for one of his two security guards, both named Rocco, to peel him off the grass. It was a quiet night, but inside his home, he knew a storm was brewing. His wife Nadine was going to be furious. It was 3 a.m., but she would be wide awake. After all, he had just crashed a helicopter into their driveway, fallen out of said chopper, then waddled away in a drug-induced stupor. Not the kind of thing you're likely to sleep through. Right on cue, one of the Roccos was headed up the driveway. Also right on cue, the bedroom lights switched on. Nadine was awake. He could barely lift his head to look. This lifestyle was eating him alive. The drugs, the infidelity, the feds constantly breathing down his neck. A few years ago, he didn't even drink. Now, he was 20 quaaludes deep, laid out on his lawn. It was going to kill him. He felt a growing sense of dread in the pit of his stomach. As he lay face down in the dewy grass, he tried his best to enjoy the relative stillness of a cold, crisp December night. He had a feeling it was one of the last moments of quiet he would ever enjoy. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our final episode on Jordan Belfort, who became known as the Wolf of Wall Street in the wake of his 2013 biopic by the same name. Last week, we followed Jordan's descent into a world of white-collar crime, working penny stock, pump and dump schemes that made him an overnight millionaire. This week, we'll follow the federal investigation into his brokerage firm, Stratton Oakmont, as Jordan tries his best to outrun the feds. In August 1993, 31-year-old Jordan Belfort woke up somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, strapped to his first-class plane seat. He tried to move his arms, but found that he'd been restrained with extra seatbelts so that he couldn't move. His best friend and business partner, Danny Porush, was asleep beside him, drooling onto his own lapel. Jordan kicked him awake and asked Danny to untie him. To his surprise, Danny refused. A flight attendant pushed a drink cart past Jordan's seat and shot him a deadly look as she passed. Danny was quick to explain that she was the reason Jordan was fully restrained in his seat. Just after takeoff, Jordan, so high on quaaludes he couldn't walk straight, had approached the flight attendant and started groping her. It took half the flight crew to subdue him. The captain threatened to turn the plane around before the flight attendant who'd been assaulted agreed that if Jordan was tied up the rest of the flight, they could continue on to Geneva. The pair were headed to Switzerland to open a bank account that could help them conceal their illegal earnings from the IRS and the US Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC. Jordan Belfort and Danny Porish had been using a pump-and-dump scheme to make them rich. Essentially, they would use aggressive selling tactics to drive up the price of a stock they knew to be worthless. Initially, they took their commission checks from the sale, then left their clients high and dry with stock they'd never sell. But over time, they began investing in the stock themselves through the use of a frontman called a rat hole. They would inflate the stock, then have their rat holes sell their shares without warning, raking in millions while the faulty stock imploded on itself. It was highly illegal and bound to eventually attract attention. Which it did. Beginning in 1991, the SEC had taken interest in Stratton Oakmont after Stratton Oakmont's net worth jumped from $650,000 to $9.5 million in less than a year. Smelling fraud, the SEC began auditing their files. As the feds dug around Stratton Oakmont for investor fraud, Jordan found himself thankful for many of his business practices. Chiefly, the fact that he never left a paper trail, never conducted business over the phone, and he never discussed past dealings, ever. An old mentor had once explained to Jordan that anybody beginning a conversation with, remember that one deal? 
was wearing a wire. Businessmen look towards the future. Only the feds are interested in the past. Jordan knew his business practices were maniacally strict, but he was especially thankful for them after the SEC had slapped him with a $22 million lawsuit in early 1993. They were suing him for stock manipulation, although his lawyer, Ike Sorkin, felt confident they would settle. Nevertheless, Jordan would feel better knowing the Swiss had his money for safekeeping. But there was little Jordan did these days without the recklessness of someone who never faced consequences for his actions. Any lay person would have walked off that plane and directly into police custody to face charges for sexual assault. Instead, Jordan was briefly detained at customs, then allowed to enter the country after a few strings were pulled for him behind the scenes. It's no surprise that money and power go hand in hand. It was one of the reasons Jordan Belfort was so eager to accumulate wealth. The wealthy are far less likely to be reprimanded for breaking the law, either because their station affords them a certain benefit of the doubt, or they're able to grease a few palms. This immunity to repercussions teaches the rich that they are above the law. According to author Susan M. Schneider in The Science of Consequences, the rich are far less likely to believe that their actions will elicit negative consequences. And so, they not only break the law, they grow increasingly bold in their behavior. They test the boundaries of what they can get away with. Of course, this earned confidence only helped Jordan as a conman. He sincerely believed that with the right precautions, the SEC would never catch up to him. Which is what led him to a Swiss banker who Jordan dubbed Jean-Jacques Sorel and his associate, the Master Forger, a Swiss man dubbed Roland, who was exceedingly good at circumventing the law. Their plan to protect Jordan's money from the US government was twofold. First, they would have a trusted associate open up a Swiss bank account in their own name, essentially acting as Jordan's frontman. This was the kind of language Jordan understood. They were asking him to use a rat hole. Jordan would deposit his money into the bank. The rat hole would have a debit card linked to the account that was used to spend a fraction of the money, creating a paper trail that legitimized the account. To the IRS and Swiss authorities alike, it would seem like normal bank account activity. Second, they would use a little-known scam called transfer pricing to launder the money inside the account. It's a financial shell game that gets a little complex and is perhaps best explained by Jordan himself, who wrote, You would engage a transaction, either underpaying or overpaying for a particular product, depending on which way you wanted your money to flow. The rub lied in the fact that you were actually on both sides of the transaction. You were both the buyer and the seller. Jordan knew of a clothing company called Dollar Time that was having trouble moving its inventory. He reasoned, 
they could form an offshore shell company that sounded clothing-related. They'd call it Wholesale Clothing Inc. Wholesale Clothing could buy up Dollar Time's inventory for pennies on the dollar, which would bring his money back into the United States. The perfectly legal invoice and purchase order would be the only paper trail. Granted, if this sounds convoluted and confusing to understand, then the con artists have achieved their goal. The whole idea is for anyone trying to follow the money trail to get lost in the weeds. But the main takeaway is this. Jordan and Roland were laundering millions of dollars and creating an airtight paper trail to cover their tracks. All Jordan needed was a trustworthy rat hole and a few good mules who could get his money into Switzerland undocumented. He knew an American citizen wouldn't work. The SEC could subpoena them in a heartbeat. He was at a loss. Everyone he knew grew up in Queens. Jordan thought these things over as he was driven back to his Swiss hotel later that August afternoon. His thoughts drifted to his wife, Nadine. They had been fighting a lot lately. The stress of this lawsuit had been wearing on him, and his back was in constant pain. As such, he was high all the time. No matter where the night took him, he always seemed to land on his own doorstep, ushered in by a furious spouse. And rightfully so. He was addicted to drugs, sex, and alcohol. He was a miserable husband. When Jordan finally opened the door to his hotel room, he was greeted by a sex worker sent up by either Donnie, the hotel, or the bankers. He wasn't sure. He was exhausted and his back hurt, so he'd need drugs to sleep with the sex worker, which, of course, would lead to more drugs and... In that moment, Jordan resolved to get sober and be the kind of husband he would want his daughter Chandler to marry someday. He dismissed the sex worker, threw his drugs down the toilet, and called his wife to tell her he loved her. His Duchess wife, who still had family overseas in England. One family member specifically, Aunt Patricia, a fiery woman who hated the establishment and loved her nephew-in-law. Now Jordan's wheels were turning. If Aunt Patricia would open a Swiss bank account in her name, Jordan could funnel money into it. Plus, he would give her a spending allowance to the tune of £10,000 a month. He could let her spend her final years a wealthy woman. Jordan did not like to linger before executing on a great idea like this. 72 hours after he first landed in Geneva, Jordan was on a flight from London escorting Aunt Patricia to Switzerland. But now, the real work began. He and Jean-Jacques had agreed to begin with $3 million in Patricia's new account, which would be funneled into his shell company, laundered, and then put back into the account. Luckily, Jordan had just a mule to get the money overseas. His childhood friend and current drug dealer, Todd, had married a Swiss woman, Carolyn, several years back, which was absolutely perfect. 
Because Carolyn was a citizen, the likelihood of her being flagged by customs was slim to none. She was the perfect person to mule the money into Switzerland. And to Jordan's surprise, she agreed to do it without much convincing. After all, to her, the stakes probably seemed low. Back in those days, metal detectors were the only thing standing between a money mule and a Swiss bank. And since money is pure paper, she was able to get through customs with nearly $3 million strapped to her waist and chest. Her parents also got in on the deal. For a small fee, they were happy to take a few family holidays to their home country, about six in total, until all $20 million had been moved into Aunt Patricia's Swiss bank account. There, at least it was safe from the SEC. But little else was. Just as Jordan's money was tucked away for safekeeping that summer in 1993, a series of subpoenas started landing on the desks of several of his staff at Stratton Oakmont. And as each employee was marched downtown for interviews, Jordan felt the familiar itch of a very old problem. Who would stay loyal and who would hang him out to dry. In a moment, two Stratonites crack under the SEC's thumb. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. In August 1993, Jordan's childhood friend Todd and Todd's extended family were helping him mule his illegal earnings to Switzerland where it was being laundered through shell companies then squirreled away in a Swiss bank account. The plan was working so well that he spent the next four months celebrating. He had resolved to get sober and stop cheating on his wife but that resolve lasted about two weeks. He spent the rest of 1993 drunk, high, and lucrative. Then, in December 1993, just after three in the morning, 31-year-old Jordan Belfort walked through his bedroom door and was greeted by a glass of water to the face. His wife, Nadine, stood red-faced before him. She was furious for several reasons, all of them justified. First, the helicopter that had just crash-landed in the yard and woken the entire neighborhood. Second, the fact that Jordan was high on quaaludes and clearly drunk. Third, Venice. 
She wasn't sure who Venice was, but Jordan had said the name in his sleep, and Nadine rightfully guessed she was a sex worker Jordan had been partying with. This was the most delicate balance in their relationship. Nadine knew that her husband slept with sex workers. She didn't love it, but she loved the lifestyle that Jordan provided her, so she dealt with it. She would scream at him, put up a fight, then eventually give in, knowing nothing would change. Of all the things money could buy, this utter lack of accountability was by far the most convenient. The unhappy couple spent the better half of the morning arguing, until Nadine finally stormed out of their master bedroom and into a guest room down the hall. His head still buzzing, Jordan tried his best to get some sleep. Two hours later, he was awoken by his maid and personal assistant. They came bustling in, bringing Jordan breakfast and aspirin and tried to get him standing upright. This had become Jordan's life, a blur of an existence fueled by a constant supply of quaaludes, uppers and downers, a steady intake of alcohol and just enough cocaine to keep him focused. Then, the next morning, a cleanup crew of personal staff would get him back on his feet and he'd start the cycle again. His drug addiction had started a few years back after Jordan slipped a disc and then suffered through a botched surgery. Now he was on so many pills for the pain that he was only sober for the first few minutes of the day while he was brushing his teeth. In the cultural zeitgeist, Wall Street brokers and cocaine go together like James Bond and shaken martinis. According to Dr. Elizabeth Hartney with Royal Roads University, there is a good reason for this. Dr. Hartney explains that a cocaine high can cause all-over body stimulation and increased confidence. Many cocaine users report feeling invincible while on the drug. They also feel alert and, in their minds, incredibly focused. It allows for fast-paced living on little to no sleep. The high-paced work environment and nights of endless parties likely make cocaine feel necessary for stockbrokers. In order to be alert enough to get through the day, mere coffee wouldn't cut it. For Jordan specifically, cocaine made him feel confident, which was paramount to his success as a broker. The confidence he felt translated to his underlings and thus onto their clients. As a salesman, that bulletproof feeling allowed Jordan to make sale after sale. As his confidence made him richer, the drugs became more necessary. By the morning of December 23, 1993, 31-year-old Jordan Belfort was earning a million dollars a week at Stratton Oakmont. He was partying with sex workers constantly and enjoying the crude, anything-goes fraternity that his brokerage firm had become. Stratton Oakmont was the best party on Wall Street, and Jordan Belfort was ringleader-in-chief. That December morning was special. It was the day that Steve Madden's stock was going public. 
By 9 a.m., the office was already abuzz with excitement. Over the course of the next eight hours, Jordan Belfort was going to make $20 million, courtesy of his patented pump-and-dump scheme. As we covered last week, Steve Madden was not only the hottest shoe designer in New York, he was also an old friend of Jordan's right-hand man, Danny Porish. Danny had initially brought Steve into the firm as a rat hole, which was their code word for a nominee or frontman. Steve would invest Danny and Jordan's money in penny stocks that Stratton Oakmont was taking public. Once the stock went public and the price of the stock inflated, Steve would pull out their shares, causing the stock to completely collapse. Danny and Jordan would pay Steve for his service as a rat hole and have enough left over to walk away wealthy men. But now, Steve Madden was graduating from rat hole to client. Every brokerage on Wall Street had wanted to take his company public, but Steve was loyal to his grade school friend and allowed Stratton Oakmont to do the honors. This was the stock that was going to legitimize Stratton Oakmont from frat house to bona fide Wall Street brokerage. And Jordan and Danny secretly owned more than half of Steve Madden's stock, courtesy of their rat holes. The second the company went public, their money would compound exponentially. By the end of the day, when they dumped the stock, they'd be taking home 20 million dollars, 20 times more than what Jordan made in one week. Just the thought of it put a certain spring in his step. By the time Jordan arrived at the office on the 23rd, Steve Madden was already milling around, ready to give a speech to the brokers to rally them before they hit the phones. Jordan strode across the floor towards his corner office past two empty desks. He sighed and shook his head. The desks stood as a lingering reminder that not everyone was loyal to the cause. The desks were once occupied by two promising young Stratonites, but they had turncoat on him at the slightest sign of trouble. They thought the feds would take better care of them than Jordan Belfort. Stratton Oakmont was in the middle of an SEC investigation. In fact, at that very moment, there were two representatives from the SEC in the office conference room auditing their files. Jordan had surrendered the documents willingly, although he had blasted the air conditioning in the conference room down to a freezing 40 degrees. If you can't shake them off, freeze them out, he reasoned. The SEC had already subpoenaed 14 of his employees, interviewing them about aggressive selling tactics that might contribute to financial fraud within Stratton Oakmont. Twelve of these employees had lied under oath, protecting Jordan and the company. And so far, they'd suffered zero consequences. In fact, they were currently sidling up to their desks, ready to make millions of dollars in stock sales that day. The two who had cracked, on the other hand, had been banned by the SEC from working in securities for life, and Jordan had happily fired them. 
They were probably flipping burgers somewhere, drowning in debt, and falling behind on their million-dollar mortgage payments. It was a shame, but it was no longer his problem. Danny Porush, meanwhile, was screaming at a broker for taking time on the clock to feed his goldfish. Pets like goldfish were allowed at the office, but taking valuable time out of their working hours to feed them was not. Jordan watched as the young broker apologized profusely, which did little to curtail Danny's tirade. Jordan couldn't help but laugh. His business partner was nuts, but it was part of his charm. Danny concluded his tirade by reaching into the fishbowl and grabbing the broker's goldfish with his bare hands. Then, sure enough, he swallowed it. All in a day's work. When the clock ticked to 9.30 a.m., Jordan's legion of brokers attacked their telephones and spent the next eight hours driving sales of Steve Madden's stock. By midday, the price of the stock had already more than tripled, and by closing time, Jordan's profits skimmed $22 million via the use of his rat hole. Jordan found it to be an odd kind of poetic justice. The SEC was suing him for $22 million, and he made the settlement in a day. Not that he was simply letting his money go to the federal government. He wasn't giving up without a fight. But somehow, he couldn't shake the feeling that the noose was tightening. He put the thought out of his mind and set out for a night of celebration, wondering how many of these nights he had left. But then, at the start of 1994, Special Agent Gregory Coleman with the FBI caught wind that Jordan was laundering money in Swiss bank accounts. Unluckily for Jordan, money laundering was Special Agent Coleman's wheelhouse. According to Agent Coleman, the first time he met Jordan Belfort, it was on his 167-foot yacht called the Nadine, which he had docked in New York. As Coleman and a fellow agent walked onto the boat, they could see a spread of lobster and caviar, champagne and fat stacks of bills laid out on a buffet table. Jordan was a consummate host, offering to help the investigators out however he could. He then attempted to bribe them. Agent Coleman knew then and there that he wanted to take Jordan Belfort down. The guy got under his skin. He told Jordan as much, and Jordan told the agents to get off his boat. As they made their way down the stairs, Jordan threw two of the lobsters at them. After years of prying, the lid was finally wrenched off. The FBI placed immense pressure on the Swiss government to cooperate with their investigation. They were able to apply similar pressure to a few of Jordan's associates who were helping him smuggle money overseas. When faced with enough jail time, the witnesses agreed to talk. Next, Jordan finally faces his day of reckoning. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were 
the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. In December 1993, 31-year-old Jordan Belfort was on top of the world. He had taken Steve Madden public, and his firm made $22 million in a day. His personal share of that was a cool $13 million. He was busy laundering that money into a Swiss bank account fronted by his wife's Aunt Patricia. For her part, Aunt Patricia was thrilled to be receiving more than $120,000 allowance a year, which allowed her to move into a massive apartment near her grandchildren who lived in London. And best of all, the $22 million lawsuit that the SEC had slapped him with seemed to be crumbling. Or so Jordan's attorney Ike Sorkin told him, Ike explained that the SEC had enough to slap Stratton Oakmont on the wrist, but their case wasn't as bulletproof as they'd hoped. Jordan's overly cautious business practices of never leaving a paper trail and never conducting business on the phone had saved him. The SEC didn't have enough to bring their full wrath upon Stratton Oakmont. Instead, in 1994, the SEC told Jordan they were willing to settle the suit for $3 million on one condition. Jordan never worked in securities again. He would have to step down from Stratton Oakmont and find some other way of making an honest living. At first, the idea disgusted Jordan. He had built Stratton Oakmont from the ground floor. Hundreds of employees relied on him he couldn't pull out to save himself and let the company fold. But Ike had more good news. Stratton Oakmont didn't have to close. Just because Jordan couldn't run the company didn't mean he couldn't let Danny run it and then act as Danny's advisor. For all the SEC cared, Jordan could take an office across the hall. He could stick his head in from time to time as a consultant. He could continue to shape the company's future and play the stock market as one of Stratton Oakmont's clients in the private sector. It all felt too good to be true. There was no way it was that easy that he could walk away from the lawsuit, the company, and retire a rich man with his wife and kids. Jordan took some time to consider the offer. Walking away from Stratton Oakmont would break his heart. But he also knew it was time to make some changes. Maybe he should hang up his hat, sober up, and ride off into the sunset. Shortly thereafter, in 1994, 
32-year-old Jordan Belfort took the deal. He settled the lawsuit, and that should have been the end of it. He should have walked away from fraudulent activities altogether. But he didn't. In fact, the majority of Jordan's illicit activities ramped up in 1994 and would continue for the next four years. During this time, he would use a method called cockroaching to run his pump-and-dump scheme. Essentially, when brokerages on Wall Street folded, the brokers would scurry like cockroaches to other firms. Jordan would use his relationship with these brokers at their new firms to infuse money into stocks and pull out quickly, just as he'd done as CEO of Stratton Oakmont. Only this time, he was an independent investor and he didn't have to split his earnings amongst the partners back at Stratton Oakmont. He'd become a real Wall Street vigilante. Considering the fact that he was fresh off a lawsuit, this might seem like unnecessarily risky behavior. But Jordan Belfort was a self-admitted addict. He was addicted to sex, booze, drugs, and recognized that money was his greatest addiction of all. In his memoir, Jordan explains that the morning rush in the bullpen was like heroin. From the first day at L.F. Rothschild back in 1987, he was hooked. According to an American Addiction Center's resource, addictive behaviors are often caused by underlying psychological issues or can be learned from one's environment. In Jordan's case, it's reasonable to deduce that two factors were at play. Certainly, his environment was partly to blame. Wall Street was rife with vices, and it was there that he was introduced to drugs and alcohol. It was all part of Jordan's moral corruption. But even before joining Wall Street, Jordan harbored a genuine concern that his wife only loved him for his wealth. He would spend the next two decades chasing as much money as he could lay his hands on. The parallel couldn't be more clear. In chasing money, Jordan was chasing his own self-worth. He found value in being able to provide a party. Money bought him admiration, love, friends, and a good time. Jordan allowed wealth to define him. Given that, it's not hard to believe he'd be playing stocks the day after he left court. If he wasn't rich, he was nothing. And like many addicts, Jordan's vice would be his undoing. FBI investigator Agent Gregory Coleman had been digging away at Stratton Oakmont since 1992. But it wasn't until he caught wind of Jordan's shell companies in 1994 that he was able to take Jordan down. Coleman was able to identify unnamed witnesses who had been aiding Jordan and his mules in moving money into Switzerland. In exchange for immunity, they gave statements against Jordan and helped the FBI identify the Swiss banker Jordan was working with. Once Jean-Jacques, the Swiss banker who ran Jordan's offshore account, provided evidence of money laundering, 
the FBI was able to arrest Belfort for financial fraud in September of 1998. His bail was posted at $10 million. So, in his trademark ostentatious fashion, Belfort had $10 million worth of jewels delivered to the courthouse, accompanied by armed guards. In early 1999, 37-year-old Jordan was facing more than 20 years in prison for money laundering and securities fraud. But the feds offered a deal. If he was willing to help gather evidence against his friends, his sentence would be drastically reduced. The sting operation lasted for a year, which led to the arrest and disbarment of Danny Porush and other associates of Stratton Oakmont. In the end, Jordan proved that while he spent his entire life worrying that others would be disloyal to him, he was the snake in the grass all along. Modern bureaucracy being what it is, Jordan's trial took years to come to fruition. In the meantime, his wife Nadine left him, as did much of his personal fortune, wasted away on legal fees. It wasn't until 2004 before he finally saw his day in court. Soon after, he was slapped with a four-year prison sentence. At the time of his sentencing, he had defrauded investors out of $200 million. He was asked to repay a mere $110.4 million. And yet, for all his sins, Jordan only served 22 months of jail time. Ultimately, he was rewarded with a book, his memoir entitled The Wolf of Wall Street. In 2013, his autobiography was made into a movie by the same name, directed by Martin Scorsese. The film went on to earn Oscar nominations for Leonardo DiCaprio, Jonah Hill, Martin Scorsese, screenplay writer Terence Winter, and was nominated for Best Picture. The book and film earned Jordan around $2 million altogether, a far cry from the $60 million he was worth in the mid-90s, but it paid the rent. He even got a cameo appearance in his biopic. Once his story made him famous, Jordan began a career as a motivational speaker. He teaches his method of selling, which he calls the straight-line persuasion method, to the tune of $30,000 per hour. He is required to give half of that money in reparations to his fraud victims, but still, $15,000 per hour will keep you out of the poorhouse. Today, 57-year-old Jordan is in a relationship with a woman he calls his true partner. And to his credit, he refrains from speaking ill of Nadine and admits that his treatment of his first wife, Denise, was abysmal. In all, it seems as though the wolf of Wall Street has been domesticated. He's content to live a quiet, sober life in Hermosa Beach, California, where he enjoys an oceanfront home. But Special Agent Coleman isn't so quick to believe the con man is reformed. He says that Jordan Belfort is easily one of the biggest bad guys he's ever taken down, and he still checks in on him from time to time. Coleman says, as a subtle reminder, that I am still 
watching. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Kerry Murphy, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Con Artists was written by Erin Lan. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>